You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Okay, we started, a couple of weeks ago, we started a um, look at the book of Ephesians. We started off in, in Acts and went through uh, about the second half of Acts chapter 18, all of 19 and first half roughly of 20 and some other scriptures to find out the background of the church in Ephesus. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 and this week we're into Ephesians 2 and we'll be launching into it pretty quickly. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them up or turn them on or whatever you do in this modern era? The book of Ephesians has been described as pure music, truth that sings, Doctrine set to music. Beautiful description. It's actually a beautiful and fitting description of a beautiful book. Ephesians is full of incredible blessings and mercies of God towards his people. It reveals to us God's plan and his purpose to put together a spiritual body for his son. And it introduces to us the centrality and magnitude of that son, Jesus Christ. And yet, pure music and truth that sings might seem like an odd description for what we're about to read in the first few verses of chapter 2. first glance, it might seem like Paul is going to smack us down from the high that we were on last week in chapter 1, where we had all those incredible things that God has done for us. It seems like Paul is giving us some bad news, but this bad news is like the bad news a doctor might give you when he says, I have bad news, you have a disease that kills billions of people. That's bad news. Actually, the simple fact that the Bible so often tells us bad news about ourselves is one of the things that strikes me as evidence that it's true. Most of the self-help books you read, psychology books and various other things, including a lot of the Christian ones, are written to tell us how good we are, how special we are, how important we are, And uh, especially when we feel bad, they try to boost our self-esteem, make us feel better about ourselves. But the Bible never does that, have you noticed? The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible instead tells you how bad you are. That's not a formula for a best-selling book under normal circumstances, is it? How can a book that tells you you're bad, you are evil, you have no future, you deserve only death, how can a book like that be helpful let alone the best-selling book of all time. But that's exactly what the Bible does. And after hearing that string of incredible things in chapter 1, we go into chapter 2, and the first thing there, verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. One of the popular arguments you've probably heard against Christianity and against claims that God is good is the challenge, if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, you probably all know how to respond to that, but the assumption behind that challenge is 
is not, firstly either God is not good and otherwise he would stop bad things happening to good people. If he's not good, then he's not the sort of God we talk about or God is good, but he's powerless to do anything about the bad things that are happening. Now, challenge, of course, rests on an assumption that's faulty at its root. The Bible is clear that God is good. There's no question about that in the Bible. And it's also clear that God is powerful enough to stop bad things happening to good people. The problem is, though, as I'm sure you know, there are no good people. No, not one, the Bible tells us. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after good. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's the storyline of the Bible from the very first pages, that there are none who do good. And because none are good, all are condemned to death. So God doesn't have to stop bad things happening to good people because there are no good people. As we continue in this chapter, we'll see this bad news of our condition described in several different ways. Starts off as we just read that we are dead in sins. It says that twice. We are walking in disobedience. We are children of wrath. We are uncircumcised, which doesn't mean much probably in modern Western society, but in that culture, in Jewish culture, meant that you weren't part of the family. You were an outsider. We are separated. We are alienated. We are strangers, it tells us twice. We are without hope. And we are without God. Twelve times in only 22 verses... It tells us bad stuff about our dire condition before God. Do you think Paul wants to make a point here? It's hard to imagine that we could be in a worse state. You are dead in sins, not just sick, not just feeling poorly, not even recovering. You are dead. The Bible never sugarcoats the state of humanity tells us, as I said, from the earliest pages that we are dead in our sins. And it includes every person who has ever lived in this diagnosis of death. Every person except one, Jesus Christ. The bad news is that you have a disease that kills billions of people. The good news is that I have a surefire cure for that disease. If you heard the doctor say that, you would say, well... The bad news doesn't really matter much because I've got good news coming. So Paul continues on in Ephesians 2 with the cure. And he continues with what has become for many Christians the most beautiful two words in the Bible. But God, but God. You were dead, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 1, you'll recall we 
read about the great power that raised Christ from the dead and a power that seated him at God's right hand in heavenly places. Mankind is capable of amazing feats of ingenuity and engineering and science and medicine. We can put up buildings that soar nearly a kilometre into the sky. The deepest mine shaft is nearly four kilometres deep. We can communicate instantly with people anywhere around the world. We've put man on the moon. We've wiped out diseases that have killed millions of people in history. Billions maybe in history. But we still can't cure death. We can't cure death. We can't bring someone back to life who has been dead, much less someone who's been dead three days like Jesus was. But God can, and he did. This power to bring back from the dead will be eternally beyond human capabilities. It doesn't matter how much we learn, how advanced we become. We will never have the power to bring back someone from the dead. But God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If there's first fruits, there should be second fruits and third fruits, wouldn't you think? And the Bible tells us that you and I, if we put our trust in Christ, are his fruits. We're the fruit of his life, his death, his resurrection. When we put our trust in him, we can have confidence in his ability to raise us up again, to make us alive, to seat us in heavenly places as well, and to keep us to the end. God will not fail to collect the harvest that he is sowing. Do you realise that? God will not fail to collect his harvest. In verse 7 it tells us, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does God allow the enemy to continue his attack on Christians and on the church? He does it at least in part to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in the coming ages to the powers, the principalities and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians tells us about that. You might imagine that God is metaphorically rubbing the devil's nose in it. In spite of the great power that the devil and his demons have, they're unable to lift a finger to thwart God's plans and purposes. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians around about 20 years or so after the crucifixion, that wicked, evil event that the devil thought was his victory, but actually proved to be his defeat. I think God's rubbing the devil's nose in it every time he shows his immeasurable riches of his grace to Christians and to the church. The coming ages are the decades, the centuries, the millennia since that date, since that crucifixion. We're living in the coming ages today. I suspect the coming ages will go on into eternity as well. I think it'll always be rubbed in the devil's nose, into all eternity. But while we live in these coming ages, God will unfailingly 
show his grace. He shows it to us as individuals and he shows it to us collectively as a church. And he does it in Christ Jesus. What might that grace towards us look like in the midst of a world of darkness, a world of ridicule, opposition, persecution, even death? I think it looks like a display of the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness towards each of us as individuals, his faithfulness towards the church. What is it that causes a person to maintain their faith in Christ through the challenges, the frustrations, even the monotony of the daily grind? It's the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is it that stirs a person to love their neighbours, their workmates, even their enemies, and do them good? The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is it that makes a person take the gospel to people, tribes and nations that haven't heard it yet or don't realise they need it? The immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is it that allows a person to boldly proclaim their faith in Christ under torture in Africa while burning at the stake in the Middle Ages, while they're being beheaded by ISIS? The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is it that's kept the church going and thriving For 2,000 years now, even in nations where it's outlawed, the church is thriving. It's the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you want to see or read some examples of the faithfulness of God to his people down through the ages, you can read biographies of some of the great reformers like Jan Hus before Martin Luther, 100 years before Martin Luther, or William Tyndale. Or you can read about missionaries like Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma who laboured for decades before, and I think three, two wives died while he was labouring there to see a church planted, which is now, I believe, half a million strong. Or you can read about John G. Patton, missionary to the cannibals in the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu, who also lost a wife in his missionary endeavours there and was constantly threatened by being eaten by those cannibals. These are men, John Piper has done a series I highly recommend called Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy and he talks about some of these guys. We'll put a link to it in our newsletter. Um, It'll stir you, it will challenge you, it will encourage you But most of all, you'll see and hear of God's immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I heard just this past week that 4,000 believers around the world have been martyred for their faith just in 2019 and untold numbers are being persecuted. More than 10% of Christians worldwide face the very real prospect of being murdered for their faith. The devil throws everything he can at Christians and at the church, but it will all fall 
to the ground. Because God intends to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. After telling you last week about all the incredible things that God has done for his people, I concluded by asking you to read this chapter. And my warning to you was that if we focus on all those amazing things, redemption, adoption, salvation, healing, all those things lifted up in chapter 1, we might become smug. We might think that we're pretty good. We could become a bit arrogant, a bit proud. We might start to think that we have something to do with these blessings. Maybe we deserve these blessings. But these blessings are not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Chapter 2, especially these first nine verses, should put a stop to any hint of arrogance that we would have about where we sit, about the blessings we have, about what God has done for us. For this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You know, it's not only the grace of God that produces faith, it's a gift of God, The grace of God produces every blessing that we heard about last week and every blessing that we hear about in this chapter because there's actually plenty of blessings in chapter 2 as well. This grace is truly amazing. The song is well titled Amazing Grace and it's all a gift. That's what grace means, a gift. Freely given, undeserved Not demanded, not earned. It's not grace if it's owed to you. It's wages then. The wages of sin is death. The wages of righteousness for us is not grace. It can't be owed. It's given to us because we can't be righteous. No, not one. So, folks, we have nothing to be proud about, do we? We have nothing to be arrogant about. All the praise, all the glory has to go to him. For it's God and God alone who takes that which is dead and makes it alive. We can't do it. And then Paul goes on in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. (laughs) So many people wonder what they should do with their lives. They get stressed trying to find God's will. Should I take this job or that job? What good works should I do? What are my spiritual gifts? What's God's call on my life? How can I find these things out? What if I miss what God has got for me? Some Christians become paralysed, unable to decide which path God is calling them to follow. Others chase prophetic words, hoping someone else will tell them what to do. Still others take on the burden themselves and become exhausted, frustrated, disillusioned by trying to do it all themselves. But God has prepared these good works in advance 
All we have to do is walk in them. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? We don't have to chase after them. It's part of the Sabbath rest of the Christian life is we don't have to chase after these things. We just walk in them. It says in Hebrews 4, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall. So how do you walk in these good works? Firstly, you put your trust in him. You grow in your knowledge of his word. That causes you to grow in faith and confidence. And then you do whatever good thing happens to come across your path. It's as simple as that. You don't need to overthink it. St. Augustine said, Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. If we love God, he will lead us in paths of righteousness. He will cause us to walk in the good works he has prepared beforehand. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, it tells us. You can trust God to do it because he is faithful to do in you and through you those things which he has prepared for you to do. Just live your Christian life. And if it's not uh, not outlawed in scripture, if it's not morally doubtful, most of us know when things are morally doubtful, we don't have to pray about most of the things. If you think I need to pray about this to see if it's morally all right to do, there's a pretty good chance it isn't, you know. Do the things you know to do. Still not sure? Boil it down to one single sentence. Micah 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justly. To love mercy. To walk humbly with your God. You do that. You do that and you will walk in those good works that he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Paul goes on in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing all hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members 
of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I don't know if you notice, there's a whole series of contrasts in that passage. And every one of those contrasts magnifies the grace of God towards us. Every one of them points out what we were before God makes us what we now are. Assuming, of course, that you put your trust in him. Remember, you were dead in the trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Very quickly, I'll run through those contrasts. Before salvation, you were dead. After salvation, you've been made alive and raised up. You used to walk in disobedience. Now you walk in the works prepared beforehand for you to do. You were children of wrath. Now you've experienced God's kindness. You've been saved by his grace. You have peace with God. There is no hostility. You were uncircumcised, not in the family. Now you have access to the Father. Now you're members of God's household. Now you've been brought near. Once you were separated from Christ, now there are no barriers. Now you are citizens of his kingdom. Once you were aliens, now reconciled to God. Strangers to the covenant of promise, now saved. Without hope, but now seated in heavenly places in God's workmanship. Once without God, now God's holy temple, now a dwelling place for God. And once you were strangers to each other as well, but now we have peace not only with God, but with each other. So I begin to wind this up. There's a, another important theme in Ephesians. I've only hinted at so far in this and the previous couple of messages. When we read Ephesians and all the wonderful truths in, that it teaches us, we automatically think that it's a letter written to us as individuals. That's our natural Western mindset, and that's the way we've been pretty much raised in Western Christian churches to think individually. The reality is, though, that Ephesians was written to a church. It was written to groups of people and it was probably passed around to various groups of people in other churches in the region. Paul wanted all of these individual believers to understand that they were now part of a body. They were part of a family. They were part of a household. They had blessings and responsibilities now that were collective. They were responsible for other people as well now. Of course, that doesn't negate the, the true, these truths for individuals. They apply to every single one of us. But we need to shift our thinking. We need to think about our Christian lives as being part of something bigger. And not just individuals. It's not obvious in our English translations, but most of the time... When Paul writes you in Ephesians chapter 2, he's not talking about you in the singular. He's not talking 
to individuals. He's addressing them as a group, you plural. If we had a Texas droll, we might say, by grace, y'all have been saved. But now in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far off have been brought near by his blood. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but y'all are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It becomes a bit clearer for us in verse 14 and it tells us that he himself is our peace. Not just your peace, our peace. Who has made us both one. Verse 19, you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. In the last couple of verses, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You've noticed, of course, the emphasis on togetherness in those verses. Meeting together regularly is vitally important for us. Not only are we called to do it, we're commanded to do it. Not only that, meeting together regularly is necessary for our spiritual health. Too many Christians get this wrong. Too many want to be lone rangers. They want to do things their way. They want to hop from one church to another, going where they feel like on a particular day or not going at all. Too many of them declare their spiritual maturity by their independence from the church. Too many have imagined they'll be able to maintain a healthy faith on their own. But they can't. That's not the way God has designed it to be. Show me a a person who has abandoned regular fellowship and I'll show you a person about to abandon their faith. They'll claim that they're still Christians. They'll tell you they can actually be a better Christian outside of the church because the church is so corrupt and abusive and everything else. They can now worship God better because they're not part of a church. But I'd lay money, their lives will increasingly say otherwise. Paul David Tripp says, because sin blinds, God has set up the body of Christ to function as an instrument of seeing in our lives. The body, the church, is an eye for us because sin blinds us. And he has set up this body to function as an instrument of seeing in our lives so that we can know ourselves with a depth and accuracy that would be impossible if left on our own. Autonomous Christianity, he writes, never works because our spiritual life was designed by God to be a community project. For in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It costs our Saviour something to bring us together. Do you realise that? And when we decide we want to be lone rangers and go our own way, we're effectively spitting on the blood of Christ. He paid with his life to bring us together. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
The Lord intends to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, to the world and to the rulers in heavenly places, through the gathered saints, through the church, and not through other means. That's the way he intends to do it. This community, this family, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In ancient buildings, the cornerstone was the most important piece. It was the first stone laid, and every other stone in that building depended on the cornerstone, both for its structural integrity and also for its straightness. The cornerstone tied the whole building together. It was the stone by which every other stone was measured to determine if the wall was plumb and straight. In the church, universal and local, Christ Jesus is that cornerstone. Nothing true or lasting can be built that is not built on him. Any church whose focus is not Jesus Christ is either not a true church or has somewhere lost its way. It cannot stand for long if it's not standing on that cornerstone. But Christ crucified must be our message. It's foolishness to most of the world. And sadly, it's foolishness to many Christians. People are always on the lookout for a better way, a more appealing way, a less offensive way to present the message. But the only life-giving message is a message of death, Christ crucified. If you should ever be a member of a church elsewhere, or even if it should happen here in the future, God forbid, that stops preaching Christ crucified, then you have two avenues open to you. One is you go... Firstly, you go and confront the leadership of that church and point out that they've lost their way. But if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to get back to that cornerstone, for your own spiritual health, you have to leave the church because the church is called to preach Christ crucified, building on that cornerstone. It's harsh words, but it's true. God forbid that we should ever try building on anything else. We'll see when we get to chapter 4 that the church that builds on this cornerstone of Christ Jesus will be a church that is strong, healthy and mature. The body of Christ is built up and made mature as the saints. That's you. That's me. That's every other believer. As the saints, not the leadership, we'll find in chapter 4, are equipped to do the work of the ministry. And that ministry must always have as its focus Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must always be speaking of him. We must always be telling others of him. We must always be listening to him. For he and he alone is the one who rescues us from sin, from weakness, from failures, from rebellion, from death. He and he alone is the one who makes us alive again. 
Merrily, can I ask you to come up and lead us in the third song in Christ alone? And finish off with that. There'll never be a time in your life when you don't need him. Never. We need him every day, every hour of every day. There's never going to be a time when we don't need his victory on the cross, when we don't need the working of his Holy Spirit in our life. There'll never be a time when we don't need the church. You know, it's not man's good idea, the church. Man didn't come up with it. It's God's idea. God himself designed the church to be the instrument of our sanctification, to be the eye that helps us to see our failures, our sin. He designed it to be a body that brings people together. There's no room for racism in the church. He's brought Jew and Gentile together in his body. Two races, two nationalities that were hostile to the death in some cases against each other. He has brought us together with Chinese, with African, with Russian, with Colombian. Thank God that we have brothers and sisters with us from Colombia today. He has brought us together in one body with people in underground churches in Iran, in Iraq, in countries where they are slaughtered for their faith if word gets out. They're our brothers and sisters. We need to pray for them. We need to recognise that he has brought us together with these people. And our heart and our focus must always be on Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Let's stand and sing this song together. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.